last year, um, I believe, um, maybe in the fall, was it early fall or maybe late summer was when Alistair Big September, September 2023. Yeah. OK. Publicly stated and shared an experience that he had. Um, I'm not sure if the grandmother was a member of his church or somebody outside. No, he, he, he didn't actually say if it was a member of his church originally in September. But he did clarify and say, I never met this one in my life just a few weeks ago when he addressed it at his church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically what we'll we'll be discussing and going through today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Scott, can you introduce yourself to the urban Puritano audience? All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, And while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. So my name is Scott Pollander, and I am married to Jody. We have uh, three kids, and they are all still school age. and I have worked in pastoral ministry. That's how uh, Brandon and I first met. Worked in pastoral ministry. Went to actually went to seminary at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia, and then came back and was the director of the Simeon Trust and worked on campus in university ministry at the University of Chicago. And um, then from there, I have worked in pastoral ministry in a number of locations, last in Wheaton, Illinois. And um, after that, I've I've gone into parachurch ministry in a sense, but really working with pastors um, on these moral issues that the, the church is really struggling. I think they're doctrinal issues that um, touch on ethics, but um, they're implications of the gospel. And so I have for the last uh, four years, been working with churches, really trying to help help them consider and, and speak more clearly on these issues. So I'm, I'm currently working in K through 12 education, helping people start classical Christian schools, but ones that um, are really speaking clearly to the issues of the day as well. Wonderful, wonderful. It really um, appeals to me hearing you with a previous experience in, in elementary and secondary type education and Christian education. For those in the audience or those that are new to the audience, please refer to the inaugural first two episodes of uh, the Urban Puritano podcast for uh, my uh, ode to Christian education uh, as a former teacher. It's always going to remain something that is close and near to my heart. For our audience and for those that are new, please, uh, Pastor Brandon, can you just briefly introduce yourself? You're a you're a pretty much a a guest that could come anytime, anywhere. Otherwise, 
Uh, you will exercise church discipline on me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, no, no. So uh, I have been in pastoral ministry now for, this is my 14th year um, in three different churches. First um, was in a free church in Wheeling, then a free church in Arlington Heights. So I was part of the EFCA for a while, actually many years, uh, 10 years of pastoral ministry. And that's a tradition uh, that I had grown up in. And my grandpa was a pastor and all these things, and then um, led to more confessional, convictional, Reformed Baptist convictions that, in God's providence, led me to come over here to what was at the time First Baptist Church of Niles and was in a a desperate place, um, one might say. But we also had some friends that were interested in coming with us and seeing a church revitalized, and I praise God for them. Um, They are dear brothers and sisters who took the risk, set out, you know, and wanted to to go and be a part of this. And um, they're all still here. Some others have come as well. We've seen the Lord revitalize this church by his grace. It's a very different church than it was three years ago. You go back three years ago, and 90% of the people who are here now were not um, there then. So we're, we're talking about an entire church makeover. There's maybe four or five members who are still left from that original kind of turnover. Uh, honestly, it's a, it's a gift of God's grace. Um, it's a joy to serve in the local church. I love the local church. My dad was an elder in the local church. Like I mentioned, my my uh, mom's dad was also a pastor in the local church. So I have a lot of affection for the local church and believe in God's um, purposes to not only redeem his blood-bought people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, but also to then assemble them, gather them, and how we please God, glorify God by doing life together. Uh, through the local local church, through bearing one another's burdens, um, through rejoicing with those who rejoice, uh, fellowship, sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, gathering on the Lord's day, and so on and so forth. So always happy to be here. And uh, this article obviously was born out of some burdens that we had, particularly with bad doctrine in local churches and amongst many uh, evangelical Christians that we were concerned about and didn't want to just, you know, flail about, but wanted to actually write, write on and contribute something that actually could be hopefully for some people a wake-up call to the glory of God. You mentioned an article. What's the name of the article again? The name of the article for American Reformer was The Desperate Decay of Doctrine in American Evangelicalism. And uh, we released it on uh, January 15th, 2024. I should say they released it and published it on their site uh, that Scott and I wrote January 15th, 2024. If I could ask Scott, uh, what was the impetus behind this? What uh, thinking motivated this article to be written and released to the public and especially to the church. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Brandon and I have been in pastoral circles. We know the landscape of evangelicalism pretty well. And um, we have seen just everybody feels it, right? Everyone listening feels the division that has happened. I mean, friends that we had even five years ago, there has been a real separation. And a lot of the times it's on moral issues and these questions of, um, I think they're questions of discipleship and whether, whether how much you teach on things, but also your tone in what you say. And there has just been, um, you know, I think that there has been a real division that we all feel, but the answer is not to, not speak on these things. So, I mean, our article started, we we talked about a number of studies, especially the Ligonier study that came out, which really, um, we cited the 2021, but in 2022, I think was the, the last one they released, I believe. 
Um, another one soon probably here. Yeah, yeah. But it's just it's very stark, just the biblical ignorance. Um, but in our own experience, I mean, I had in pastoral ministry, I had had a number of interns over the years that I loved, um, loved working with. The best intern I had ever had graduated from Wheaton College. She graduated from Wheaton early, truly exceptional. Her father was an EV free pastor. And yet she did not know the Ten Commandments. And that was, I mean, this is literally Luther's small catechism. This is like where people started. And so even, I mean, in in pastoral ministry, what I started seeing is that nobody knows anything anymore. And I think that's true of the church and and church leadership as well, where um, they are just not effectively discipling. And I think they're having trouble understanding both the scriptures on these sorts of issues and um, understanding the whole counsel of God, let alone teaching it, and then um, in making disciples, the sheep really, um, I do not think, have been equipped to understand both these doctrinal issues that, I mean, anthropology, you know, we we cited at the beginning of the article just um, basic things about the doctrine of sin and humanity that people no longer understand. no longer ascribed to. They do not understand basic Christian teaching. And so Brandon and I just, we saw um, kind of the state of the church and we wanted to evaluate where are we actually? And we have statistics, we have stories, but um, the article really wants to address also, this is where we're at. How did we get here? And we give examples of many church leaders and things that they have said. And so that, that's, that was really the impetus um of the article, even seeing, um, you know, the churches we have been a part of, Mm -hmm. uh, it have not been faithful and effective in these things. So it's, it's personal, you know, I think, um, we also have felt that division both in ministry, but also personally, and that's probably true of every person listening. We have felt that right. And if you care about teaching on moral issues, like, um, well, I mean, sin in general, repentance, let alone abortion and LGBTQ, naming these sins and talking about them, having a, a biblically sound answer. You're a cultural warrior in these sorts of things. So we just wanted to, to um, shed light on what is the state of the church and how did we get here? And there are solutions. And I think the, the answers are also, uh, we, we kind of point some directions for answers as well, I think. I will say. Great, great. You know, one of the things that I was thinking while reading the article and meditating ever since is that a lot of the things that you all wrote about, I remember reading similar observations from conservative evangelicals and maybe even, you know, American reformed uh, Mm -hmm. people in the mid to late 20th century books that I was reading when I was a whippersnapper <laughs> and uh, they were uh, sometimes lamenting very similar things. Yeah, yeah. And so when I read the article, I was like, well, th- this is the, the fruits of that. Yeah. Uh, and things were obviously not dealt with the solutions that may have been offered then were not mm-hmm. listened to. We could either, you know, keep on sliding on this, on this track or, or somehow halt it. So what, what uh, solutions um, just briefly, you know, just 
curse in a cursory way before we get into um, a specific manifestation of the downgrade with yeah. Alistair Begg. What what solutions? Well, it does seem like, you know, just when one thinks about the ordinary means of grace and not trying to do anything fancy or novel, having this grand vision, you commit to the local church where the gospel is being preached and you bless the local church. Um, that That is uh, that is vital. You know what I mean? There's no doubt that um, being committed to what God is committed to is absolutely vital. And there's no perfect church. You know, Spurgeon once said, you know, if you ever find the perfect church, you should leave it because you mess it up. And uh, that's true and uh, accurate. We all resonate with that. But I think when you're actually committed covenantally, meaningfully to a local church where your pastors are, are shepherding you and watching over your soul, where you're hearing uh, the, the word of Christ faithfully preached, the gospel going forth, where you're singing the word and it's dwelling richly in you. And you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, and, and there's church discipline, baptism. There's these good things that God has ordained for our good and our spiritual nourishment uh, in this world, in this already not yet time frame. That that is critical. That is absolutely crucial. And uh, and also praying diligently with the saints and uh, not giving up that time, um, and, and being willing uh, to pay the cost. You know, increasingly we live in uh, what many have called, what Aaron Wren called recently in his book, this negative world. Right? We're in this negative world where. We have to be prepared to realize that what we say as as a Christian is going to be offensive, and there's no way around it. You you can't avoid the fact that it's going to be viewed by and large by a large segment of American society and by a large segment of the American church, whether they're deceived or immature or whatever, ignorant. It's going to be viewed by them as intolerant and um, mean and hateful, lacking love, lacking compassion, these kinds of things. And you just have to be willing to pay that cost um, and know that um, uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ told us that um, a student is not above his teacher. Right. And and they persecuted me. They'll persecute you also. And again, these are small prices to pay when it comes to being slandered or being spoken against, called a bigot, whatever it might be, uh, compared to what our brethren in um, uh, persecuted countries are facing underground churches kind of a thing. So I just I just think it's a small price to pay. But we do need to equip the saints in the work of ministry and ourselves and our, ask ourselves, am I willing to pay the cost if it comes at being fired, if it comes at being overlooked for a promotion, if it comes at being explicitly named a Christian who's one of those kinds of Christians. Um, and more could be said, but those are just a few comments I would want to make. Yeah. Yeah. And Roberto, um, you you had mentioned, you know, the there have been writers that have been writing about these things for a long time. We actually, towards the end of the article, we, we talk about um, Harold O.J. Brown. It was literally, I went back and, and started reading um, some of his books. I think it was in 1977, he released a book, Protest of a Troubled Protestant. And what he was saying then was that um, Christians are ashamed of the gospel. And so preaching sin, you know, preaching repentance, these sorts of things, that is what he was seeing in Protestantism. And so it's no coincidence that he was one of... Um, a couple founders of CareNet Ministries and, I mean, was one of the few evangelicals at that time that even cared about abortion and these issues in the culture. And, you know, David Wells, I don't think we quoted David Wells at all in the article, but there have been many that was saying this is really about God and the gospel. It's a fundamentally about God and understanding the gospel. And you know, who God is has been lost to some extent in evangelicalism. Yeah. I am thinking now um, about 
where Alistair Begg fits into this and mm-hmm. his uh, recent controversy where he first voluntarily mentioned nobody asked about this particular issue. It just it was casually mentioned as far as I could tell. It was like a question and answer type thing where mm-hmm. he's detailing his uh, experience of mm-hmm. receiving this contact question. Yeah, it was which, like, we get these questions all the time. Right. For example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, before we get to the specifics of that, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to me that uh, he, out of all people, um, because I, I gathered I'm not a close follower of his um, ministry over the years, but I had known of him and he's pretty reliable, conservative, and maybe even reformed friendly. Mm-hmm. He's definitely familiar with uh, conservative reformed theology and doctrine and practice. He's a known as a pastor's pastor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his books have been devotional, you know, go-to resources that pastors and lay people would, you know, mm-hmm. recommend and give to each other. And definitely I've yep. heard him on his uh, broadcast and, you know, over the years, not consistently, but over the years. And, you know, there's been great clips of his, mm-hmm. you know, sermons. no doubt. And so he's been a frequent guest in conferences and speaker and different yeah, conferences. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's known. And that's why it's a little bit humbling that such a conservative and reformed friendly and conservative evangelical would be the one to basically contradict and practice what he professes, you know, in doctrine. And so um, he doesn't see it that way. And he, Mm -hmm. he has no qualms of saying that he has absolutely nothing to repent for, for what he uh, gave as his advice. He's not ready to repent, right? (laughs) Yeah. I I do want to linger at a, at a certain point to introduce this because uh, the particulars are important, mm-hmm. but um, I'm, I'm looking at it as a not not as a pastor, um, but I am in my current role, uh, a chaplain in healthcare, mm-hmm. And, you know, the skill set for a chaplain and the skill set for a pastor overlap to mm-hmm. a great extent, but not, you know, 100 mm-hmm. percent. Um, obviously, you know, a chaplain is not over a church. And there's not members. It's uh, basically very volunteer oriented if, as, as far as mm-hmm. person must, you know, request, you know, that type of support. Yeah. And the person may not even be a believer. So, you know, automatically, as far as the calling of a chaplain goes, and I, I encourage a lot of Christians to get into chaplaincy because mm-hmm. um, it, it is a potential um, harvest field for, yeah. for ministry. Absolutely. but um. My father-in-law is a chaplain in Indianapolis. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm just becoming a chaplain right now. So we got to connect on that as well. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, you have to switch your mindset somewhat. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you have to be authentic. And the best mentors that uh, help chaplains become certified understand that yep. they don't have yep. an agenda. Obviously, you know, you, you may you may have, you know, some that do, but mm-hmm. the best ones they give a lot of allowance for you to be authentic. So if yeah. you're uh, a, a Christian, a Bible believing Christian, by all means, you know, look into that and uh, the field is, is ripe for harvest. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one of the things that I heard Alistair Begg mention is that uh, when he encountered this uh, grandma, she was troubled. 
because she didn't know exactly what to do. So that right there tells me that her conscience was uh, unsettled about this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a very delicate task to deal with a person with that they're struggling with a conscience Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. You know, um, as a chaplain, you may struggle with uh, counseling somebody that a family member that's a, um, in charge of whether their loved one continues to live, yeah. continues to live or yeah. needs to have the feeding tube, you know, removed because it's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just Heavy. let natural processes take over, mm-hmm. uh, and their conscience is bothered. Oh, natural fallen processes. Yeah. Take over. Yeah. yeah. But I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so the best type of counselor or chaplain is not going to say, do this and don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, just when, just because a person, and I imagine this is, you know, somewhat the case with pastoral ministry, just because a person presents a problem or a situation, it's not your role to solve it for them. They have to come to a place where they are responsible for the decision to do the right thing and whatever the right thing is in that particular situation. Now, obviously some situations are black and white. Yeah. Some are maybe gray and shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was the the first thing that stood out to me where it's even more difficult when the person is separated, you know, he's not mm-hmm. part of your community. He's not even in your vicinity, yep. but this is through maybe a phone or a letter. Mm-hmm. Okay. This person, how do you know this person's representation of the situation is, is accurate? accurate? Yeah. You just take their word for it. Um, and that that was a red flag to me right yeah. there. The other thing was that later in his uh, explanation, Alistair Pegg said that one of his main motivations was to preserve the relationship. Yeah, above all. He was above just all, yeah. That, yeah. Again, is that part of your job description? And anybody that I encounter, I must preserve their relationship with their family members. Yeah. And so right. to me, I think that and and then he he also said it in one of those explain yep. afterwards explaining his motivation. He said maybe his uh did he say grandfather hat took over, may have taken yeah, over? Yeah, he did. He said his he grandfather said some, hat took over. Something like that. If anything, I've been guilty, my grandfather yeah. had took over. Yeah. So that to me was very significant, very mm-hmm. telling. I hardly hear anybody react to that, but as a pastor, as a chaplain, as as somebody, as a father or a grandfather, mm-hmm. you are not supposed to let that hat, although it is legitimate, you know, it's yeah. a legitimate role, mm-hmm. take over. No, it can't dominate. It can't dominate yeah. in a situation like this. Yep. Um, exactly right. So that to me was the the, the buns of... Yeah, I'm sorry to be um, I'm sorry to be vulgar, but <laughs> no, the, the buns of the crap sandwich that he served yeah. to the grandma and to the public, because it really was. if it was the right thing to do for her situation. Well, there's a lot of situations that are like that, that are emerging, that are popping oh, up yeah. nowadays. Why not that? Oh, Why not those? Oh, yeah. And so put your finger on it. I mean, there's, there are legitimately conscience issues when it comes to how believers might relate to sinners. Like Alistair Begg and others have brought up, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. But as many have rightly pointed out, Dr. Robert Gagnon, New Testament scholar, um, who's probably the leading authority on sexuality in scripture living today. He and others have pointed out rightly that uh, the gray areas we're dealing with 
are not if you should have relationships with sinners. It's what marriage is, your presence there, what it communicates, you are a witness, this kind of a thing. And so it actually, you know, you have to you have to take it out of this uh, situation to make it a gray area, because that's not a gray area. Going to a wedding, um, there's actually a blasphemous pagan ceremony, as Bethel McGrew and others have pointed out. That's exactly right. You're mocking God as creator, as king, as Lord. But there is gray area when it comes to how are you going to relate to that neighbor who identifies as this or that sin, right? How are you going to relate to him or her in terms of your own home? Are you going to have them in your home or not? And why? If you have small kids, you may choose not to, or just to have them maybe in your yard, this kind of a thing, and have a backyard party, you know, something like this. There's legitimate categories of gray where we might disagree, and Christians might land differently. This liberty of conscience. No one wants to stomp and like micromanage every person's decision. But what Begg did that is really novel in some ways is he he tried to let like himself be viewed as compassionate and on the side of God and, and on the side of, you know, just trying to care about relationships, whereas the rest of you don't care about relationships, which is misnomer. And it's completely a misfire when it comes to you, you can't say that it doesn't logically follow that because we're saying it is wrong and sinful and you should repent and not go to a wedding that blasphemes a living God and his design for marriage. And sit there as a silent witness, as Carl Truman pointed out, when you know you should uh, not behold what is evil, what is worthless, right? The psalmist tells us, I will not look on anything that is worthless, anything that is evil. What you have right before you is Deuteronomy 22.5, an abomination, someone mocking God by wearing the opposite uh, gender's clothing and garments. And, And you are literally there celebrating and affirming by your presence this sexual immorality, this relationship that... Uh, people around you want to succeed. They want to see this sexual immorality continue and go on. They're not calling uh, other people to repent. One of the things that was frustrating for me about Beg's specific counsel that I think a lot of pastors find themselves in today is, and, and Kevin DeYoung, to his credit, when he went through and uh, re- rebutted what Beg was saying rightly, um, and, and it's no surprise, he's done that for years. But Kevin DeYoung pointed out that um, the concern is Christians will feel in my heart and in my relationships, I feel okay with this. Therefore, I can do this. And they override everything else. Because what Beg did was, number one, he didn't know this grandmother. So at the time, the concern I had was, okay, we don't even know if this is a member of his church. Some of Alistair Begg defenders were saying, it's just a member of his church. You don't know that. You're filling in the details there. And actually, we found out he didn't know this woman. It was someone from uh, the radio who knows uh, who she was. But why didn't Beg direct her to other authorities in her life, her husband? Uh, her pastors. Well, what have your pastor said? But supremely, the word of God, like your conscience seems to be troubled. What scriptures are you thinking about that would honor God? And, you know, we're called to do everything to the glory of God. Do you think you would glorify God? Can you thank Jesus for this as you go to this? Like even just basic questions that pastors would ask of, well, you know, this is a costly thing to follow Jesus. And we're we're called the aroma of death, the stench of death, you know, to those who are perishing. Um, and, and Jesus told us if they persecuted uh, me, they'll persecute you also. We know there's a cost to following Jesus. So I think even the verses that talk about in Matthew's gospel, that he has come to divide what? And bring bring not peace but a sword, dividing mother from daughter and so on, and all these family relationships. You could have presented that as a, you know, this is something that might divide uh, you from your. In, in this case, he said granddaughter originally, and then it became uh, grandson. Or I'm sorry, I said grandson originally, then it became granddaughter um, uh, in 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 recent weeks. But I think that's the concern: is like, where is the the wisdom of saying what does the Word of God say supremely? What do your pastors and elders say in your local church? What does your husband say? Um, and then, of course, 
do ask, what does your conscience say? Because Bag actually suggested that we should do this. Not that we could, but that she should. I suggest you do go to this. He almost ignored her own conscience. What if she was troubled? And James 4.17 says, he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it for him, it is sin. And so there are just layers and layers of poor pastoral counsel here uh, that time and time again pointed out, this was not, this was not handled in a way that honored God. This was not handled wisely. And it goes to show that even if a man has, has been faithful to expose the scriptures and been right on a number of uh, points and, and been strong where many others have been very silent um, and praise God for the times when he has been for sure. Um, th- this goes to show that no one, no man should be, you know, trusted with this infallibility. I see these Begg supporters saying, Alistair Begg has a great heart. He's a heart of gold. All these legalists, fundamentalists, I can't believe this. I'll support Alistair Begg no matter what. And you're like, that's just idolatry. That's just idolatry. No man deserves that kind of allegiance. Only one man does, and that's the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give any man that kind of allegiance that's blind. Your li- no matter what he does, I'll always support him. Well, what if he sins? Like, what if he never repents? What if he hardens his heart and even get the council gets worse? It just was, it was laughable and it was really sad, but it also showed again, this desperate decay of doctrine amongst evangelicals who were defending him and acting like this was a good defense. And uh, it's just, it's just a tragedy because it was such foolish counsel and Scott and I and others have pointed out, this is a, a short putt as it were as golfing, you know, it's a short putt. It's an easy up. It's not a difficult thing to get right. But and, brother, this is, and this is his teaching. This is his discipleship on this issue. And so he made those like um, Rosaria Butterfield and Robert Gagnon, as Brandon mentioned, and Carl Truman, these people who have all written, all addressed this either on podcasts or have written articles in response, he made them out to be Pharisees. People that have understood, they have deep understanding. And guess what? Several of them have paid severely in their life for being faithful on these things. And what is his discipleship on these issues? I mean, it's really, um, it's just incredibly unhelpful. And I mean, you compare what their their teaching is so biblically robust. It's not all about how people would misunderstand. They might call you cannibals. They might call you incestuous, right? I mean, what what people accuse Christians of are often the very points where we can teach and clarify the gospel. And um, that he would put lump everybody um and including these incredibly godly people who have such incredible wisdom, as we've even seen in recent weeks, right? Um, Beckett Cook, another one. Beckett Cook is another one. Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook is, he's phenomenal, you know? A man who was once in homosexual relationships, lived out in California, and he addressed this. And the way he described, and this is before the Beck situation, but he described after his conversion, going to one of these air, air quotes, gay mirage kind of a things. And the 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 way that he described how wrong it it, it was yeah. in his soul. Like, why wouldn't you even appeal to the wisdom of that and say, you know what, with many counselors wage war, yeah. I am one pastor who's not your pastor. I'm not your husband. I don't know you. But here's some considerations. Like, just to not even give anyone else who has any other opinion um, any kind of sense of respect. And that's what Beg failed to do. He didn't give any respect on that. So it, it was egregious and it actually got worse. Many pointed out that Beg's defense was actually probably worse than his original. His uh, response was terrible. It was, it was terrible and it was so sad. Uh, so tragic. I would also say this too. One, one other comment that's really bugging me that I want to, uh, you know, unleash as it were. 
people keep talking about how this is one specific counsel he gave to one grandma. If you go back and read that September manuscript, he actually, number one, quoted the scriptures and said, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's a fine line, isn't it? And then he went on to broaden the counsel. This is so obvious as the day is long, but people just wanted to ignore it because they wanted to defend Beg. He broadened the counsel when he said, I think we're going to have to take risks. I think we're going to have to take more risks to build bridges so that people know that Jesus is a king. And so stop with this nonsense. And it is a lie. That's what I get. It's a lie. When people say he was just giving counsel to one person. No, he wasn't. He broadened the counsel to all Christians. He quoted scripture. He's talking about his book, A Christian Manifesto. And then he said, we're going to have to take these risks to build bridges so people know Jesus is a king. So he broadened the council and thinks that you and I and every person should take those risks, though he didn't define what those risks involve. Go to going to a a polygamous wedding ceremony, going to what other kind of risks are we going to take, uh, Alistair, so that people know Jesus is a king. And by the way, what kind of king are they going to know Jesus is a king of? The example I gave in an article for the Illinois Family Institute was, are you going to go to an illegal border crossing party? And someone's like, whoa, 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 that's that's illegal and immoral. Time out. Time out, Pastor Brandon. Okay, fine. What if the laws were changed so it was just immoral, not illegal to do that? What then? So there was no like legal pen- penalty for this, but you went to this border crossing reunion party, right? Uh, where they were trafficking uh, girls into the country, whatever else, this kind of a thing, and promoting all these narcotics and whatever else, selling them. And you went there, what, because so people would know Jesus is a king. What kind of king would that be? King who doesn't care about justice, king who doesn't care about righteousness or holiness, king who doesn't care about anything. And so uh, people are like, oh, that's an extreme example. You're like, yeah, but Beg didn't actually define what he meant by take those kinds of risks more and more so people know Jesus is a king. The risk I heard was sit there silently as someone commits an abomination deforming their own bodies, maybe bodily mutilating themselves. That's the other thing. You don't know how much this grandson's, or I should say granddaughter's significant other butchered up her body. You don't know what kind of uh, surgeries or cosmetic changes, these kinds of things. There's no sense of like asking, do you know what kind of harm that individual has caused to him, his or her body? So you're promoting this earthly harm and 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 this abomination, but you're also promoting eternal harm. And it's 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 so sad and so foolish and so reckless on multiple levels. Um, and and it, uh, many have pointed out this like swap the sin thing. I heard it from Daniel Strand, the ethicist first, um, who's who's got a pretty uh, prominent Twitter following. He's written for American Reformer as well. But he's like, uh, Grand, Grandma, can I go to uh, or this grandma asks the pastor, can I go to a KKK hooding ceremony? Right. And you swap it with something like that. And it seems nonsensical and insane. Why? To take risks so people know Jesus is a king. But that's not a pet sin. That's not a pet sin and a favorite sin. So people are like, no, 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 not for racist, not for this or that, but for sexually immoral. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Um, it, it's laughable. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It can't be applied consistently. Right. Really is this out people want to have so they can say, well, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have my comfort with these sinful people who actually are being celebrated all around me and I don't have to pay a social price and I uh, have my relationship with Jesus. And it's yeah. like, you, you can't have one or the other. Um, and right. it doesn't, about having a relationship with them, period. We're not saying you cut off all the relationship. They may cut off the relationship with you if you don't go to this abominable ceremony, but that doesn't mean you cut off the relationship with them. That doesn't mean you won't go over and celebrate their birthday, as uh, many others have pointed out, like Ligonier, when they wrote their response to Beg, which, by the way, I wish they would have just named Beg, because they're like, some would say, you know, this kind of a thing. It's like, guys, just name him. We all know who you're talking about. But Ligonier's response was fantastic. They took the parable of um, uh, the prodigal son, Luke 15, and they just applied it the way it should be uh, rightly applied. Not in the sense of, uh, oh, you're all American fundamentalist, legalist, nothing like that, but actually applying it 
as it should be applied. What the father didn't do, the father didn't go with the son and uh, spend all his money on whoring or whatever else, just so he could actually burn a bridge or, you know, build a bridge, take a risk so he would know Jesus is a king. He didn't do that. He didn't he didn't uh, do that with his son. And Ligonier pointed that out. And I thought it was a fantastic point to Alistair's counterpoint of saying, um, you know, no, the father welcomed him home. We're going to err on the side of compassion, these kinds of things. So it's really sad to see him doubling down and digging in deep because our point in the original article was just to say this is inconsistent with the gospel. It is inconsistent with the gospel because you're redefining sin, the lordship of Christ, and you're actually ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of God's truth and the whole counsel of God's word, including sexuality, gender, marriage, all these things that are very clearly spelled out. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 alone, but the rest of the scriptures as well. So our point was to say it's incompatible. It's inconsistent. It's it's a poor witness for Christ and his kingdom, and it doesn't at all adorn the gospel of Christ. It actually undermines um, that and that message of Christ's lordship. And, and the world's going to know Jesus is a king, but he's not uh, a powerful king. He's not a good king. He's not a righteous king. He's another kind of a king. I'm not even sure what kind of a king he is that uh, you're going to get when someone goes to something like that. Yeah, and one of the things we allude to just a bit is the whole counsel of God. I mean, these are there are certain things, the things that are the issues of the day are abominations. Um, and literally, when you look at the trajectory of Scripture, we just allude to it in the article, just like we don't unpack completely, like a lot of the following articles on Beg, we don't unpack the whole thing. Um, and I'm so thankful that this has presented an opportunity for people to disciple and get the word out there. How should they really address a gay wedding or an issue like this. John Piper is one of the only people that I had seen previously do this well. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's incredible how, um, because of that article in the beg issue, people are are now realizing, no, this is foundational. Okay. This is a rev, this is a Genesis one, as Brandon mentioned to revelation 22, which we allude to in the article. We don't unpack the whole thing, but these are foundational issues and they are truly things that are, are, they are nature itself. They are, and that's why they are, are great, great sins. They are abominations because they go against actually the created order and they miscommunicate about the gospel. Marriage is significant, male and female, sexuality, sexuality, sexual sin is incredibly serious. And so literally, Jesus in Revelation 21 and 22 says that the, the sexually immoral, they're, they're going to be in the lake of fire, he says in, in Revelation 21. You know, it's it's the same thing with those who shed innocent blood. These are foundational issues that Christians need to understand that scripture does speak clearly on these things. And it's not just, um, you know, Genesis one and revelation 22. It's all the, all the high points of salvation. You see things like child sacrifice and massive, I mean, temple prostitution, right? These sorts of things. And so um, the trajectory of scripture is really important as well, because these are foundational issues that can be traced. It's not only Genesis 1, it's literally, what what is Jesus' tone? Because tone is part of this conversation, isn't it? I mean, go read Revelation 21 and 22. We need to preach the seriousness of sin. And not, that that's the thing with me with um, why this is so serious is because a lot of the leaders we mentioned in the article, I mean, Tim Keller on 
homosexuality. You know, it, it won't send you to hell. You know, we talk about that. Beg also, he's downplaying the sinfulness of sin. Okay, and you don't even have to go to abominations. Liars won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But right. uh, we don't want to downplay liars or adulterers, any of these things, thieves, but certainly do not downplay, um, you know, murderers and, you know, homosexuality, right? And so it downplays these things. It, it's become normalized and it's become, we know it's become normalized in the culture, but the problem is it's become normalized in the church. I mean, TGC platforming Preston Sprinkle saying yep. that gay desire is not, you know, is not actually sinful. I mean, that is, as Rosaria Butterfield says, that is heresy, okay? That is not a Protestant view of sin. That is heretical. And so, um, you know, beg it. And Brandon and I, we really, we went back and forth because we felt like, I mean, I have not followed his ministry closely, kind of like you, Roberto. Um, But I had seen clips of his that, I mean, truly, I, I felt were very powerful. I had known many people who appreciated his ministry. And we we said, you know, some of these guys, their just ministries have been marked by compromise for years. Beg, we haven't seen that as much. We went back and forth whether we include it. Well, now I'm very glad we included it. And this is why. So there has been so much good teaching that has come out of it. It's I'm very sad about Beg. I hope he repents still. But all of the positive teaching People don't know what to do in these situations. Even the you see it in the conversations online. Um, people want guidance. They have not received guidance from their pastors. And now there is so much that has come out in the last yeah. weeks that is so good on it that oh. I am so happy awesome. that we included it, even though Beg's reaction is is incredibly sad. Well, another thing I should say is this, that, you know, just to give credit where credit's due, my brother, who does not have social media, he is probably a wiser man than I am in that regard, and others who partake sometimes from time to time, though I know that it's an opportunity to bear witness for Christ and to promote the truth. So it's not all a waste, of course. But um, Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. And um, just to put this in perspective, Trevor was the one who actually uh, listened to Alistair Bag. He listened regularly to him. He supported the ministry. And to put this in perspective more, back in September, Trevor sent this to me. And I was he's like, please tell me, listen to what you just heard here. I was like, I listened to it three times. I could not believe it. Yeah. And uh, then I showed some of the men from our uh, men's theology breakfast. And I, I we were all like, what are you serious? Alistair Begg, he's so solid. I can't believe this. And I was like, yeah, I couldn't believe it either. But you listen to it like that's the counsel he said. And back in September, Scott, you remember this, but Ben Zeisloft, who's got a, uh, I forget what he writes for, but he he posted a clip of Alistair Bay and he said, he's the best, this kind of a thing. And I just responded with something like, yeah, I used to recommend his ministry, but ever since this uh, very confused counsel, I can't do it anymore. He didn't respond at all. I don't have like some bigger Twitter following, so I can't, or X following, so I can't, um, you know, blame him for that. He probably gets a lot of people reaching out to him and Ben's solid on a lot of this stuff anyway. But what what is interesting is it actually is an indictment upon bag listeners. Now, not every single one, but on many of them. How many people heard him say that back in September 2023? Thousands? Tens of thousands? I don't know. Maybe more. Hundreds of thousands. There were plenty of people who heard that instead of questioning it and saying, I don't think that's best. They just carried on in their lives. Yeah. So it's actually an indictment. I think more Trevor wrote to the ministry 
And yeah. waited for a response. He wrote to a pastor he knew on staff, never heard back. Um, and uh, and then he was like, I'm dropping my support, right? This is the way it's going to go. This is ridiculous. This is terrible counsel, miserable, anti-biblical, contradictory counsel that goes against so much of Alistair Begg's ministry. And, you know, I would have appreciated, I think many of us would, um, Begg's just a little bit of humility on Begg's part instead of this prideful, I'm not an American fundamentalist and you're a Pharisee. It would have been so nice if Begg would have just said something like, you know, uh, I want to do everything to the glory of God. That's still my mission. I want to do everything according to the whole counsel of God's word. I realize in recent days, godly men and women, and then name off a few, right? Rosario Butterfield, Kevin DeYoung, many others over the years who are godly and have put forth wise counsel disagree with me on this. And then he could even said his little line of, I may not be ready to repent yet or think I need to do that. But insofar as these are God-fearing um, brothers and sisters, these are friends, not foes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend is what scripture tells us. And I do want to think about this more. I do want to search the scriptures more. I do want to seek wise counsel on this more. And he should have also said something like this. He should have said something. My goodness, this keeps bothering me. Why didn't he say something like, insofar as you're going to use my words to excuse yourself going in endorsing sins or being silent in the face of when people are sinning? All right, which that, is happening. That Which is happening. That would not be my desire. Instead, you have this digging in his heels. You have this very prideful, arrogant defense. And even the eyes of Jesus of scripture where it's all of a sudden lost on him that ironically, this man who's exposited the scriptures, takes a scripture, marshals it for his case, and then butchers the meaning and the purpose of that text is looking at it rightly. And others, Kevin Young, have pushed back against Beg in this regard. And so a little bit of a dose of humility. Um, you know, some have pointed out, like one brother sent me that Ray Galea article. You know him, uh, I think, Scott from Australia. This guy, Ray Galea, wrote for the uh, uh, Gospel Coalition Australia a, year, a few years back on the sins of older pastors, brother. Mm -hmm. He said there, sometimes pastors compromise on matters of essential importance. When they were younger men, they would have died over them. But now in their older days, they're compromising, whether it's on the person, the work of Christ, whether it's on uh, the authority of the scriptures or it's on, he actually ironically said, gender and sexuality, according mm -hmm. to the and, and you know, maybe that is something there. My dad actually brought that up, one of our elders here at the church. He said something like, you know what, I wonder if maybe it's just age. Maybe he's got, and my brother questioned, well, I wonder if maybe it's a, a family member. He's got a granddaughter, a grandson, someone else in his life, a neighbor, or maybe someone, an elder at the church who's a prominent member who's got a grandson, a granddaughter who's going through this kind of a thing. So usually we do see this. We see this kind of compromising cave. You saw it with um, that senator out in Ohio, Rob Portman, whenever his son came out or whatever, he caved uh, um, on this whole thing. You see this across the board, that guy down in um, at Mercer University, David Gushy, his sister, I think it was, came out. And then all of a sudden that shifted and changed of perspective. So when people have a personal story or someone in their life who does start to identify like this, you do have this kind of uh, bleeding heart that comes forward but what an indictment on beg listeners that no one brought it up for months on end. And honestly, if Trevor had social media, maybe it would have gone out forward uh, sooner. But you literally have this January 15th, the article gets dropped. And then what's got the day of the day after? Boom, the social media just oh. takes it, this kind of a thing. So we're not trying to pat ourselves on the back and say we launched it. We, we just made a comment on how it's incompatible with the gospel. And actually, we are grateful for the fact that now there has been a sharper dividing line drawn so that then people can ask themselves, how would my pastor, my pastors, shepherd and counsel me through this? Because going back to what you said, Robert, about um, the whole uh, conscience level issues, 
I do think in a local church, there's a place to to understand a situation uh, more and to be sensitive that it doesn't mean you would uh, you you would go. I still think you should not go. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be compatible, something that a believer can do in good conscience, according to the scriptures. But when it comes to those real gray areas of I'm trying to figure out, should I have this individual in my home? Um, uh, or, or, you know, these kinds of tricky situations when it comes to the relationship outside of the context of a covenantal marriage. Um, those are real conversations to be had. Those are where our sympathetic pastoral uh, ears should come out, and we should actually be encouraging them. We don't always get it right, um, and we got to be careful we don't stomp on someone's conscience and say, I don't think I could do that, but it uh, doesn't mean you couldn't do that, because sometimes we do want to make laws and become new legalists and have like, everything's got to be jot and tittle. But the idea that Alistair Beck says, these American fundamentalists always want to have everything black and white. And he's not understanding that there are many God-fearing men and women who've now pushed back against him and said, you're, you're missing this. You're treating it like an individual conscience matter, just like the uh, folks at the Orchard did with, with this, uh, the Orchard Evangelical Free Church here in Chicago. And it's very sad because they appeal to that like it's an out for everything. You can't just appeal to the conscience or to Christian liberty and say, well, because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not attend a transgender wedding, that therefore it's a matter of conscience. You have to actually apply good and necessary logic, this kind of a thing to the scriptures, and also look at what the whole counsel of God's word says. And I just am increasingly like shocked by the fact that so many people continue to go back to the idea that there aren't going to be ripple effects of this. Oh, this is just Alistair Begg's counsel to one one grandmother. That's all right. it is. He's still a wise man. It's like, look, if he never repents, he's not a wise man. He's actually a fool. And and his ministry will be marked by this. And people need to know that, that if he doesn't repent and humble himself before God and actually before those who he's now falsely accused and slandered, because he actually owes now multiple apologies. This is the thing. He's Sin begets sin, and, and Alistair Begg has done that through his miserable counsel, and now through his like defense of his miserable counsel, Alistair Begg has added to this. And so if he never repents and actually changes course on that and says, you know what, I came out hot, I was mad, whatever else, he, he's a fool. I don't care if he preached the gospel for decades, and neither should anyone else. If you're a God-fearing Christian, guess what? It is possible for someone to utter words that disqualify himself from ministry and actually make him someone who you shouldn't trust or look to any longer. And I know that might hurt some people's feelings, but I would say the same for myself. I would say that if you look at Galatians 2.14, the Apostle Paul is willing to oppose Peter to his face, right, for the way that he was doing something inconsistent with the gospel. And this is inconsistent with the gospel. And uh, people keep on treating it like this. Oh, it's a matter of wisdom. And it was just bad counsel, poor counsel on one matter. I saw um, Gavin Orland say something like, you know, I want to counsel them this way. But um, he's still a faithful man. Another one, Wheaton Prof, John Dixon on, Twitter, on X said something like, if Alistair Begg's out, we're really in trouble. We are definitely in trouble. Um, there's some Australian guy who said the same thing, Michael Jensen. Alistair Begg's as straight as they come, da 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 And you're like, look, again, this whole idea that like one man gets this un allegiance, and you don't deal with the content of what he said. And they, they won't. They won't deal with the content of what he said because they know it's indefensible, yeah. both biblically, historically, theologically. Um, and yet you've got these people coming out of the woodwork yeah. now, Russell Moore, all these things. Um, and who's surprised by the side that they land on? Let's not cancel bag these mere orthodoxy types um, that think they're putting uh, forth these strong arguments. But they're missing, again, the objections that many of us have raised. Where's the consistent standard drawn from the word that you can apply to this situation that's not going to have ripple effects, that's going to be negative and tear asunder the local church? Because I would just yeah. say, if you think you can be in a local church with men and women who see this as like a, a secondary you know, matter of personal conscience, 
uh, rather than a matter of church discipline, rather a matter of repentance, rather than a matter of God's righteousness and holiness and how we're supposed to be in a sinful world, you're you're fooling yourself. Second um, Corinthians six fourteen says that we are not to partner with unrighteousness. Um, what has righteousness to do with unrighteousness? What has darkness to do with light? What is light? Um, and many other texts say similar things. This is not a matter of conscience. These are matters of the Lord has drawn the line. The Lord has created us male and female. The Lord has given us marriage to reflect not only his love for Christ in the church, but also as David Ayers, a sociologist who's a Christian, rare one uh, in, the, in the field of sociology, pointed out. It's actually this picture of the Trinitarian Godhead. Um, uh, you have this in scripture from the very outset when it said, let us make man in our own image, male, female, he created them. And it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's a Trinitarianism that you're denying when you uh, blur the lines there. Now, we don't think as Protestants, it's a sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. But next to the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinances, this is one of the greatest pictures God has given us on earth of Christ and his love for the church of the beauty of who he is and what he's like and that care and that compassion. So you're, you're twisting that, distorting that. And, and, and it's, it's diluting something that God gave us so that we praise his name. Um, and, and it's so sad to see people who think this is like a secondary, non-essential matter of individual conscience, like Alistair Begg's team said, apparently like going to a rated R movie. Um, the, the idea that you would compare the two of like, well, some Christians are going to choose to go to a rated R movie and some are going to choose to go to a transgender wedding as if those things are on par or, or equivalent with one another. It's it's laughable and it's and it's absurd and it's indefensible again, but no one will ever respond to that, which I find um, very troubling because it's like, make your case, but then let us do us out. And if your case is how other people, um, you know, that it will hurt their feelings in the relationship. I mean, yeah. you can apply that. There's just no limiting principle. I mean, yeah. why not drive your granddaughter to get an abortion? Would he advise that? Why not? I mean, we know there's a thousand cases. I mean, in, in a couple of years when uh, Paula Morris uh, marriages are, are in. Yeah. Fair I mean, would, would he recommend doing that? Because today he wouldn't, I don't think. I just think we can see he is not going to be consistent that anytime somebody would misunderstand and think it's not loving, it's just there's no limiting principle in it. It makes no sense. And it's not really, he, you know, it's not scripture that is giving him parameters for how to act in that situation. So, Pastor, you mentioned uh, Gavin Ortland's recent yeah. uh, response, semi-defense. He didn't defend the council, no. but he wanted to emphasize that uh, Pastor Begg shouldn't be canceled because of this secondary issue. And he mentioned what he's very famous for, actually central to his uh, YouTube uh, mm -hmm. channel, is theological triage. Yeah. And he classified, you know, this type of issue as a secondary. And so even though he disagrees with it, he was more perturbed by the response to Begg. Definitely. The actual counsel of Beg, yeah, and so that to me, it was it was curious because if you advocate for theological triage, why yeah. don't you apply theological triage to the counsel that you disagree with, and why focus on the reaction? And the reaction, you know, is is varied. Even though it was a rejection of the counsel or rebuttal or refutation of it. Um, and you know, he's, he's responding, his, his response was like a mix of everything, either yeah. big names or 
people online. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could kind of filter out that. Yeah. And you could, you know, use a couple of well-known representative examples of people that were opposed to that council and and uh, really were gave reasons, biblical reasons for it. You know, you don't have to be scandalized by the pushback by anonymous people online. Why don't you go for the the merits of arguments that are known by people that, you know, perhaps in your circle as a as a minister or um, just a known writer and things like that. I just found it very curious. The other thing, too, you know, that, you know, for for Alistair Begg, I think he's been a pastor in the U.S. for what, like 40 years, he said. Yeah, something like that. He's been here for four in Cleveland, I think, most of that. Right. And I would imagine that this particular controversy has been probably the biggest in that 40 years, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. And so as soon as this, you know, pushback comes about, it was kind of sad when I when I was first reading his his reaction is that, wow, you've been here for 40 years. Okay, you've you've been pastoring faithfully a, a you know, a congregation of Americans throughout that those decades. And yeah. as soon as you get some pushback, you kind of like disassociate yourself from the country that you've been <laughs> serving God in yeah. and throwing them under the bus because of their unnuanced sensibilities and dogmatic, you know, convictions. Yeah. And you just appeal to your own education and upbringing and background as superior yeah dropping names like d martin lloyd jones dropping names like john stop dropping these names of heroes to many of us who are american evangelicals um now obviously stop we have disagreements on things annihilation Mm -hmm. and whatever else this kind of a thing he's even on some of this whole airplane stuff we were talking about that yesterday about how like word and deed or Mm -hmm. you know this kind of a thing like how they're two parts of a plane Brother Paul had a good critique about that. But I would say this, that again, Stott's book on the cross of Christ, penal substitution, the cross of Christ, fantastic, these kinds of things. So I think he was really making an emotional argument. But I also think what he was doing was trying to deflect by um, uh, almost reducing his opponents to like these American fundamental. I don't know about this American fundamentalism. Um, and and again, what that does is it avoids dealing with the content of and the substance of the arguments that some of us have made. He can hear it loud and clear. We are saying that God defines us male and female. Now, people will be like, do you think Begg disagrees with that? The marriage between one man and one woman, monogamous for life, right? Uh, faithful to the Lord. But you think Begg disagrees with that? Here's what you're missing. His counsel disagrees with that. It is incompatible with that. It contradicts that. And, and so much of his ministry contradicts that. Just last year, he was at Liberty University, the convocation. And he's saying stuff like, I'm an older man. And as an older man, I'm here to tell you, this is literally what he said. Let me read the quote, because I think it's one of these these things that I think people miss. Begg literally said this, the Liberty Convocation last year. He said this, I want to say to you as an older man now, if you are in Christ, you have no freedom to believe anything other than what Jesus has said. If you believe in Christ, you have no freedom to behave outside the shepherding boundaries of a God who knows best. And we're like, yes and amen, Begg. Where were you on this council to this grandmother whose conscience was tortured? Uh, concerning this stuff or or concerned with this, where were you? Then he said, again last year, either we're operating from a worldview that is framed by the thought forms of the age or by a worldview that is grounded in the will of God. No possibility of compromise, action between the two. They're incompatible. We cannot hate and we cannot affirm because of God's word. We have to be prepared to say we are unprepared to rewrite the Bible. 
in order to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and needs the Jesus who is the focus of the Bible. And you're like, yes, Beg, we agree with you on that. You told us these are incompatible. And now you're saying, but maybe not so much. And so it, it's just ironic that it does run contrary, contrary to so much of his ministry. And going back to theological triage again, you know, I think the best response that I read actually was by um, a sister in Christ, actually, Abigail uh, Dodds. Uh, uh, you might know her, Scott. My wife's read some of her books. I've given some uh, of those books over the years. But she actually had some great comments on the theological triage. I'll just read a couple of them. I think the Begg situation is one in which a simplistic th- three-tier theological triage simply doesn't work. And then she goes on to say um, uh, this. Not only do- does it not work, it will lead you to misunderstand God's priorities. And if you're a mom or dad, you could really handicap your kid's discernment and wisdom. Here's the messed up uh, thinking. Quote, he's wrong about this, meaning Begg. But he's a faithful brother teacher, followed with, even though I disagree with him, this is an area where we can disagree because it isn't a first tier issue. It's that second sentence we need to examine in light of scripture. Here are three examples that present us, or present as a third tier issue, but really are first tier. Adam and Eve eating a particular food versus Adam and Eve rebelling against God. Uh, uh, Second Peter, practicing circumcision versus Peter denying the the heart of the gospel. And third, Judas, working with chief priests versus Judas betraying Christ. In all three examples, you could make a case that the sinner error was a mistake that doesn't rise to the level of first-tier doctrines, but that would mean disagreeing with God. Eating from a certain tree signified high-handed rebellion from God's commands. Requiring circumcision signified a rejection of the grace of God in Christ. Working with the chief priest signified betrayal of the Messiah. All of them hid behind second- or third-tier behavior, eating food, circumcision, partnering with another religious group. Yeah. What about Begg's teaching? Uh, Dodd says, I do not judge his heart, um, which just my commentary on that. Matthew twelve thirty four says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus tells us. And so we should do a better job of believing what people say about themselves when they do tell us. Because this is, Beg has dug his heels in here. And unless he does repent, those words reflect his heart. Let's just be clear on that. Those words reflect his heart. It's important to realize that. Um, so I would respectfully disagree with Dodds on this point. But then this sister goes on to say this. I do believe this is a first tier uh, air in regard to what it signifies. It presents as a third-tier decision about what party to attend, but it signifies a denial of God as author and creator while promoting love born from fear of others' judgment. It's not mere bad advice. It's an error that needs correction, just as Peter's did when fellow Christians want to appear kind and gracious by saying, we can agree to disagree. It's not a first-tier issue. They're not loving beg nor those listening to him. Not only that, as moms and dads, we owe our children wisdom in these matters. The simplistic triage too quickly jettisons wisdom by applying a system that can't grapple with the many serious uh, ways serious sins manifest itself. Teach your kids how to see clearly and love truly no matter the cost. And that's what she said. And I thought that was a fantastic summary of why that simplistic triage, which can be helpful in other ways, uh, will fall short and lead you astray. Because we're saying matters of gender, matters of sexuality, matters of marriage, they're not second tier issues. And some seem to want to say, oh, no, but they are. Oh, but the application of them are these kinds of things. And people keep going back to it was just specific application. It was just, the you know, this kind of thing we're disagreeing on. We're saying, no, 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 that there is something to the ceremony itself and again, I think that uh, by virtue of the fact that so many, not only Ligonier, Kevin DeYoung, Rosario Butterfield, many others have, Robert Gagnon, have, have very clearly and ably pointed out, not, not a second-tier issue, not a third-tier issue. Beg really needs to revisit this. At this point, is we're on solid ground to say, Beg, you could at the very least say, there are many faithful Christians who have public platforms who are strongly disagreeing with me on this. 
And I really want to take time to reconsider and pray. I have a feeling, though, he's going to dig down. And again, I'm no prophet or whatever. I hope and pray he doesn't do this, but I have a feeling he's going to dig down and probably we'll see a leftward turn even more. But to be clear, I, I've not followed Beg. I, I have appreciated much of his teaching over the years, or some of his teaching, I should say, but I've not followed him as closely as some, certainly not like my brother did. Um, uh, and I would just say this, that Beg has shared platforms in the past with Beth Moore. Beg has kind of taken a softer position and view on um, uh, women preaching under the authority of the elders, these kinds of things. And so there have been kind of some crevices, some cracks here and there uh, when it comes to Beg's ministry as this kind of solid, convinced, confessional, faithful uh, guy on some things. Now, that would not at all, to me, be disqualifying of his ministry. I think some of those things that he's wrestling through um, are, are understandable, who to share a platform with, who not. I think the Beth Moore one is obvious. You shouldn't be sharing a platform with her, particularly now, but that was many years ago. But I would say this, that now you've entered into a new category where it's not just outright air. It's the embrace of the probably leading sin that is celebrated more than any other sin in our day. It's hard to find any other sin. I mean, do, I, do you know one that has a, a whole month to itself devoted to itself, a whole day devoted to itself, coming out day, these kinds of things. And so you look at the nature of this rebellion, you look at the way that Jack Phillips and others are being penalized by the state and by others. And it's like, beg, is this really the witness you want to send? Because right now, actually, you're actually turning against Jack Phillips and others who've suffered the consequences for not bowing to Caesar on this. And uh, and actually, he's given a lot of evangelicals and out, particularly younger evangelicals, something like 50 percent of them already approve of same-sex relationships and marriage and won't call that. Right. So you look at that and you're like, look, this is actually something that is going to have ripple effects and a negative ripple effect. So that now finally people can say, ah, you know, secondary matter it really is a secondary matter because, look, Alistair said so. And I think we just have to say, I don't care who said it, they're wrong, and here's why, and point out what scriptures say on this. Yeah, and I can give up an example just, Brandon, um, what you're saying, like, should public school teachers use pronouns, preferred pronouns? Because I, yesterday I have a situation of a couple Christians that are being asked to use pronouns uh, for a sixth grade girl. Do they lie for the sake of love um, because they're Christians, because of the gospel? and I mean, the, the theological triage topic is just, uh, I mean, it's it's huge. It's super important. And I think, you know, there is so much confusion on it. Like Moeller was incredibly helpful. But what I see, I mean, Gavin Ortland wrote a whole book on it, right? I went to a conference at Dane Ortland's church of a group of reformed people from around the world and some well-known names. And um, they basically said, you know, we need to agree and preach, get back to the, the gospel of justification by faith. Hmm. And I am like, amen, amen. We need to preach the gospel and justification is the heart of the gospel. But then they said, we need to not disagree on these secondary issues. And they didn't name what the secondary issues were, but I think they're really, it's these sorts of things. It's its the cultural war issues, right, is what he was referring to of abortion and homosexuality and these things. And I'm just sitting here, we got to get back to the Reformation. What was indulgences? You know, what was indulgences? If anything, it's even a step further in my mind away from marriage and gay marriage. I mean, that is so close to understanding the heart of the gospel. And so, this triage um, 
there's a lot of potential in it. I think Moeller has been very helpful, but the way it's used so often, I mean, these secondary issues, like you said, are God. I mean, and whether something is a gospel issue, that's also the gospel coalition has not been helpful. So even using those terms at times, I don't like it. But right. uh, but in thinking about the triage, it is so clear that I mean, how could some? I mean, how could something that Jesus says these things will exclude you from the kingdom of heaven? Literally, his last words in Scripture, pretty much, not be gospel issues, right? Um, how can they be things that we put off to the side to preach justification? You know, yes, if if you want to exclude sin or certain categories of sin and not talk about them, and again, that's one of the things that led to this article, Roberto, because um. You know, we have heard so many times pastors say we don't want to be political. Yeah. You know, we're saying we're not asking you to be political. We're asking you to be Christians and preach the whole counsel of God and understand the time you're living in. And so, again, Rosaria Butterfield is 100 percent right. TGC in these groups, even ones that we have worked with and been very close with, they don't know what time it is. And when they're saying, um, you know, they have not addressed their their answer to the cultural moment was not to to do conferences clarifying these issues for Christians. Their answer was MLK 50 mm-hmm. and celebrating a man who lived in sexual immorality, right? That was their answer to the cultural moment. Um, it's just been absolutely unhelpful. And so, but the theological triage, it is what people need to understand. What are first, second, third order issues? And I can tell you, um, they are just so inconsistent because the whole Reformation, what is indulgences? Well, it's, it is it is a, a first order issue. Yeah. And well, marriage certainly is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And the thing Open is, up. it's about redefining what is sin. Like, I don't understand why people keep can't get away from that. I think to give credit again where credit's due, James White was the one who said that years ago. He said the reason these matters are not secondary is because you're redefining the nature of Christ's lordship. You're redefining the nature of sin away from its biblical written revealed uh, standard to this objective, mushy, gushy, you know, uh, standard that's away from the scriptures. The the whole side A side B argument is laughable. It's so unscholarly and unsophisticated. When you look at just the plain text of Romans one, and uh, uh, you, you and I, Scott, were looking at that just yesterday because uh, we're about to preach on it here at our church. I'm about to preach on it here at our church. But you look at this, and um, uh, Jay Adams, who's a biblical counselor now with the Lord, made some comments on this and how, like, you can't separate the desire from the act as cleanly as so many people want to, right? It's like the idea that, oh, it's only a sin if you act on it, these kinds of things. That's not a biblical view of sin. Colossians actually talks about the idea of, uh, you know, we do put to death what is earthly in us, the epithumia, the evil desires in us. And, and that's not limited to just some kind of like, oh, it's it's about hating someone or about calling someone a name in your heart. That's about disordered desires, as, as many have called it, including our friends who are papists in Rome. They love using that language, disordered desires. It, it's, it's depraved desires, right? Depraved desires, disordered desires. But you look at Romans 1, 24 and on, and it says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, that's inner, to impurity, that's inner, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, that's external, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, right, so that's something, they're exchanging something that's true, they know to be true, 
and they suppress that truth and they're exchanging it now for a lie. And then it goes on to say this, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26 of Romans 1, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, something inside you, a, a desire within you for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So it is both the internal and the external that, that right. Paul is condemning. Yeah. And you, this distinction between side A, side B, whatever else, like, well, right. I think the um uh, I think the actions are sinful, but the desires are not. I think there's something that we can redeem about the desires, like it's this whole spiritual friendship stuff that Wesley Hill and others promoted that the TGC folks celebrated for so long and that confused people and threw people off the rails of what it meant to be faithfully following Jesus and taking up your cross and putting and, and not actually um uh, living this life of self-indulgement, um, which was so sad. You have these ridiculous, gross articles coming up about how, like, you know, I like to cuddle with my roommate or whatever garbage is there. Um, even the TGC stuff, I can't remember which article was, something about how, you know, they, they love saying this line, right? Um, and Jared Moore, by the way, uh, who who's written stuff on this, which is really helpful. I don't know if you're going to have him on at some point, but if you can, that'd be Yeah, amazing. episode will be forthcoming. Good, Good. Yes. awesome, awesome. So Jared Moore pointed this out recently. To give credit to this brother, and he's exactly right. There was a TGC guy, Dean and Sarah. They love saying this for years. I heard Christopher Yuan and others say this, and Christopher Yuan has been good on something, but they love to say the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it's holiness, these <laughs> kinds of things. And, and Jared Moore is like, you're pitting God's creational design uh, that is good, right? Insofar as channeled into heterosexual monogamy, marriage between one man, one woman, right? Uh, you're pitting that natural, good creational gift from the Lord against this other sin. Like the opposite of heterose or homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. They love to say this, but it's like those two things, um, they sound so clever and so cute, but it's so shallow when you actually get down at it. It's actually confusing because if a man has a burning desire, first Corinthians seven says that he should actually take a wife and be married. And there's a lot of men out there who just need to hear this. Like maybe you'll hear this and you're a single man. If you burn in sexual desire, you need to get married. You need to have a wife. You don't have the gift of celibacy. Stop being in sin. Get married uh, to a godly wife, Christian in the Lord, this kind of thing. If you're a Christian man, marry a Christian woman, put to death what's earthly in you, but stop it with this nonsense, childish, uh, immature behavior of saying, well, you know, I'm burning, but I, I burn. Stop it. You need to get married to a woman. God has given you the gift that you can get married to one woman. There's no discrimination there. And stop it with this childishness. You need to get married. You don't have the gift of celibacy. All these guys who are now walking around the earth who are single and saying, I'm single, I'm single. Uh, but you burn. You don't have the gift of celibacy. Stop it. You were never given that gift. And it's a very rare minority who actually were. And I think that the church needs to get better about recovering a positive sexual ethic to say it's right. good to get married. Actually, you should get married younger and have kids younger. And 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 that's one of my biggest regrets. I wish I would have married Katie younger, had kids younger. Um, and uh, God would have provided. Who cares if we were poor and had nothing? It's like God would have provided. Um, so yeah. you absolutely need to not only combat what's erroneous in the church and these these shallow doctrines, but also we need to present a positive ethic and, and honor what God says about loving our wife as Christ loved the church. Celebrate marriage. One of the things we're trying to do in our church more is we get the anniversaries of everyone in our church and recognize it. Pray for them in the services, but also like send them something and be like, hey, 
Praise God for your marriage. We're praying for you. Press on because we do need to have a positive kind of promotion of what is good and right and true. It needs to be celebrated even almost over the top, I think, in this culture. We need to go over the top and celebrate it in a way that I think does befit the gospel and, and honor God and push back against this uh, uh, garbage that we're around. Speaking of um, addressing that and going over the top, uh, perhaps, you know, taking a step back and looking at the whole panorama of both history and current landscape as far as you know where these controversies are going and obviously we've been talking about the the sexual uh sinful identity type issues and, and transgender issues it's not only identity it's changing physically mutilating yourself and mm-hmm. identifying as something else and asking others around you to engage in the delusion and the lie that that you choose Part of the reason, and we've been talking about this, is because the church leaders haven't shepherded the people. You know, a shepherd is supposed to feed and protect. And when we talk about, you know, these these um, uh, surveys and and polls and, um, you know, research that is done about Christians current beliefs and why they are so unorthodox, you know, people are people. Sheep are sheep. Yes, we're responsible. But, you know, when I think about, you know, for example, I'll just put it out there. Baptist churches, you know, Baptist churches are are uh, many in number. You know, there's other evangelical Bible type churches, but they're basically Baptist. You know, so when mm-hmm. you take especially in North America, let's just say I'm generalizing. But what is the 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 average tenure of a pastor in a Baptist or evangelical or run of the mill Bible church in a, in a local church. Do they have the time to feed consistently and protect and teach consistently and defend the flock? And I must say, I don't know the exact statistics, but you know, the audience could go look into it for themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it is not, you know, very many years. No. Is that a reason why we are in the situation we are in. And then, point. you know, when, when we look at, you know, some of these um, big ministry leaders and even world leaders, like you mentioned in Australia and Europe and other parts of the world that chime in and, and kind of express a little fear or anxiety. Hey, if Alistair Begg is, is a target, then we're, we're all unsafe. The, the cir- they're circling the wagons. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, a little, you know, cynicism in me is like, it, it, they may not be circling the wagons on the person but maybe the the position, the pastorate, because they're in the same position and we're all liable. They're all liable to make a mistake and give bad counsel or to to kind of like pull the wool over their people's eyes and say, you know, I'm, I'm headed towards this direction, but I don't want to make it seem so obvious. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a little nervous about what's happening to Alistair. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but, you know, this is this is this is what I think I'm speaking. Yeah. No, I look at this as a church member. I've been a member of of various churches throughout my life, and um, I've seen pastors come and go. It's like, well, one of the reasons I think the surveys, you know, are so dismal in their biblical knowledge results and things like that is because, well... They're basically on their own for a lot of the part, yeah. you know, they're, or they're Christian. Yeah, they're not a shepherd, even yeah. though they belong to a church. Yeah, it's it's this is a great observation. I mean, years ago, Mark Dever did say in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, we live in a commitment phobia era where people hesitate to commit. But I also think it's like we also live in a, a shepherdless era where it's like, think about how many people are watching their pastors preach on screens 
and don't have actually any connection, real connection to their local church. Um, that's an important thing as well. There's no like sense of smelling like the sheep of of uh, these, uh, you know, my, my sheep know me. Um, so a lot of this does circle back to the local church and real discipleship happening in the local church. And I think one of the same things that is heartbreaking about Alistair Begg's whole situation is like this man has, as mentioned, spoken where many have remained silent and taken what I would I deem to be unpopular but accurate and biblically faithful positions on a number of those issues over the over the years. And yet he wants to have this kind of out for himself that says, because I've been faithful. And he actually pointed out to some time when in California, he got driven out of the auditorium where the lesbians stood up and walked out. And he he appealed to past faithfulness to excuse his present error. And and I just think we none of us can do that. You can't say, well, in the past I was faithful and therefore let me off the hook for this one, you know? And, and I do think that Lord willing, every pastor who um, is called to the ministry is biblically qualified and in that position will serve his church uh, faithfully and and serve the Lord diligently and not just look for the next best thing. I think that is something that plagues a lot of uh, modern evangelicalism is I'm looking for the next best thing. Um, and it's like, look, your church is going to go through highs and lows, ups and downs, just like uh, your, your spiritual life sometimes as well. But be faithful in preaching the word without shame. Be faithful in uh, teaching your people the gospel and shepherding them and uh, and pushing them towards using their gifts to God's glory, but also to personal evangelism, to praying for the salvation of loved ones, to uh, boldly actually recognize that we're going to we're going to see the Lord advance his kingdom and his glory even through us and even in ways we might not expect it. Because it's amazing what, you know, people say, oh, look what the left has done to this nation over the last few years. They're so small. They're such a minority. And I'm always like, yeah, but if just a few churches, a, a fraction of the churches that called themselves faithful to Christ took up the mantle and had the kind of same zeal and energy, it's always so grievous to me. I'm like, all these people, cult groups included, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, like, but then the LGBT uh, brigade, the Alphabet Brigade, these people will, will do for a lie what Christians won't do for the truth. And it is shocking. It is shocking to see um, the, the the results that they get. And then you see the um, uh, this almost like... A lifeless church where where people are are almost not willing to take up the cross of Christ and deny themselves and follow Christ and actually go boldly with the sense of yeah the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe and it's folly to those who are perishing and yet I'm going to take this message of folly and I'm going to declare it to sinners because God is on the move redeeming his people his elect for his own possession and he's going to seek and save the lost and he's going to use us as the means by which his his gospel goes forth and so we can't fear anyone who's enslaved in sin and deceived but i think the biggest concern for scott and i with the article even was that the world has invaded the church at, at such an extent that you have tim keller and others saying things that are disqualifying for ministry like the fact of the matter is that clip from uh, tim keller at columbia university was like 2008 or 2009 like where were where was everyone uh, you know saying hey Tim this is not faithful at yeah. all where have the voices been on this like James Wood wrote a, a critique of Keller's ministry as like a, a third wayism this winsome approach and and Woods was completely silent when it came to that issue like that is gospel denial that is that is truth denying words that that man was disqualified from and then that the presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention J D Greer and then Ed Litton in this ironic I would say uh, ugly twist of the Lord's providence, really, to probably embarrass evangelicals, really, both used in sermons and didn't give credit to Keller for as long as I, as far as I could tell, Greer right. didn't give credit to Keller, and they're and they're quoting not some like zinger of a line that was so full of gospel truth, but they're yeah. quoting 
deed was actually blasphemous, wicked, evil, misleading, and should be repented of, and is even disqualifying of ministry. Yes. That doesn't surprise modern-day evangelicalism uh, in America. I don't know what does. And so beg going on about American fundamentalism, I'm like, man, I, if I'm an American fundamentalist because I think marriage between a man and a woman, and I think you should actually um, uh, be, be, be concerned about who you partner with, right, and not promote evil. And if I'm an American fundamentalist, uh, and, and the opposite of that is J.D. Greer, Litton, and Tim Keller. Please sign me up for that team. You know what I mean? That's what I would just say in terms of like what uh, what what, what, we're, what we're dealing with here today. The crisis in modern American evangelicalism um, stems from not only a lack of fear of the Lord, but it does stem from also a love of money, love of comfort, this idea of like having your sin and eat it too, having your cake and eat it too. How many of these churches are actually practicing church discipline, equipping their people to actually practice like this? Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, go and take your sin to him. Um, and, and if he doesn't, two or three, this kind of a thing. Where, where you don't have this, this, this faithful pastoral church discipline, again, not in this ruthless micromanaging someone's life, but actually caring about the righteousness and the holiness of God. Actually, enough to, to say, like, we, we're, not, we're not just going to let anyone join our church because we want to grow in numbers, numbers, numbers. But actually doing your due diligence to pastor, to shepherd, to lead, and then to care for God's people. Is it harder work? Yes. Is it more costly work? Yes. But is it absolutely worth it? And is God glorified in that? Yes, he is. And that's how actually the, the, the church adorns the gospel and is in this compromised, confused mess where you have all these pastors who are let off the hook for saying things that obscure the truth, saying things that actually are ambiguous where God, should, God has spoken and is clear. That, that's one of the most heartbreaking things. We have a word from the Lord. God has spoken. And he is clear. He has given us a standard. And so where Christians are not faithful to actually appeal to the standard, to God's truth, to go back to it again and again and say without apology, here's what God says. Here's what he's like. And here's what he expects. And then here's the gospel for you, a sinner who's fallen short of that standard. Um, you're missing the whole mark of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And you're going to stand before this God who's given us this revelation. And that's a sobering reality. You're going to give an account for how you didn't honor what his word said but preferred your own words and really an editor for God. Uh, that, 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 that is no small judgment. That is a sobering judgment and woe to those who practice such a, a foolish kind of air quotes on air quotes, evangelicalism or Christianity. Let me ask you to wrap up. Give us in light of everything that we've discussed, what's um, our steps towards hope? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, just as, as we are talking about this, um, the subtitle, it's kind of at the very top of our article, it said, what one generation assumes the next loses. And I think what we are largely talking about is assuming a lot of what actually was passed down in previous generations. Whether I mean, we've talked about concupiscence, um, we've talked about a number of whether it's homosexuality or these other issues, we really just have to have clarity because with concupiscence, the Catholics didn't believe that inward desire, indwelling sin was sin. This inward desire where the reformers with concupiscence, they they said, no, this is sin. We have lost just basic doctrines that this gospel centered mu movement has not been clear on. They've actually muddied the waters massively on a lot of these issues that we're talking about today. And so should you go to a wedding, a, a gay marriage wedding, um, there's just such a lack of clarity. And so I would say, you know, what do we need to do? 
well, one generation assumes the next loses. And actually, Brandon, some of the guys that you mentioned earlier, they are coming out. I've seen in the last few weeks, um, you know, one of them said, I can't stand Kevin DeYoung. These are evangelical leaders overseas. I can't stand Kevin DeYoung. Another one um, went after Joe Rigney this past week. And he was saying that he is uh, uber conservative and just online, he's just really nasty with people. And they said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Can you give an example? Of and it was like, you know, it's almost like he was calling him a transphobe or something. Can you give me an example of something he said that's transphobe? Well, I've heard he is, is basically what he said. <laughs> and Never specifics, never specifics. Guys. These guys, so many of them have come from a previous generation, like in Sydney Anglicanism, that was so solid on the gospel and had massive fruit. And that's what I am seeing also. You know, what one generation assumes the next loses. We have assumed these things. We have not talked. People don't know whether they should go to a gay wedding. Um, they don't know whether inward indwelling sin is sin because we haven't taught these things that previous generations I mean, it would have been so easy, these answers. So we need to proactively teach and um, just make disciples. And you have to know what are the, the, the hot button issues of the day that people need guidance on. You cannot be silent on those. You have to proactively disciple. And Don, to your point, Scott, before we have to go, I know you have to go. Don Carson, ironically, again, D.A. Carson said, uh, this is a TGC article from a while ago. I think he actually wrote it originally for this X-29 thing, but he actually said um, uh, in Western evangelicalism, uh, Dr. Paul Hebert, who was at Trinity for a long time, who came out of this Mennonite stock and analyzed this, he said this, what one generation in assessing his own tradition of Mennonites, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there are certain political, social, and economic entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments, entailments being their, you know, uh, good works, deeds that adorn the gospel. And then the following generation denied the gospel and the entailments became everything. But here's what's ironic about this is we're not even seeing gospel entailments, right? We're not oh, even seeing That's what I'm saying. For discipleship, yeah. we're seeing this whole new branch of that's like right. COVID, BLM, all this stuff. You don't see any humble repentance, any sense of, yeah, I think we got that wrong. And again, Carson uh, one of my professors at Trinity said this accurately, too. When there are public sins, there needs to be an equal measure of public repentance. There have been a number of public sins over the years on COVID, on sexual immorality or confusing people on those matters, on, um, uh, you know, even thou shalt not murder and confusing, obscuring the lies there for some weird. Oh, I want you to, you know, be able to support the, the this this leftist who's godless. And what, I don't even know what it is, like be tolerant of others. Who knows where it comes out of? But um, Carson, I think, puts his finger on that there with that Paul Hebert quote. And I just think that, again, what C.R. Wiley and others have said is right. There's a new evangelicalism that is forming. And I think it is absolutely this doctrinally robust, consistent, true, confessional. We're not interested in like playing church. We're not just here to show up. We actually want to be those who are faithful. As God is faithful. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to walk in wisdom and holiness and make a mark on the world. Not because we're great, but because God's great. And like we want yes. them to know that there's a Savior. His name is Jesus. There's no other way to God except through him. And he has standards. And yes. he's spoken in the world. This is his world. And you cannot go against the judge of this world and the creator of this world's standards without paying a high cost, both in an earthly and in an eternal sense. 
And praise be to God that there is a, a way uh, for, yeah. for you, sinner, to, to know peace with God, to have eternal life. And that's through Jesus Christ. I just wish more and more Christians would realize you never right. have to teach someone with the gospel of Christ by downplaying the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the majesty of that law that thunders against sinners and that convicts and drives us then to what? Christ, who is the end of the law. This is this is what all of us should be about, is promoting Christ, who's the end of the law, and saying, you're not going to keep it. You haven't kept it. In fact, you've broken it. You've trespassed against God's law and holiness. Don't downplay and diminish the law and think you're going to get to Christ. Um, like the Puritan Thomas Watson said, right? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. This is so basic. Um, you're going to love Christ and treasure Christ more and more whenever you see so clearly, look at how short I've fallen. Look at how righteous and holy God is. And yet we've got a whole swath of evangelicals who are antinomian and act like they're against the law, and oh, we're in the new covenant, we're under grace, don't ever mention the law, and this squishy evangelicalism that thinks that they're going to reach people by being nicer than God is, almost. And don't oh, That's 100% right. It's, it's very For sad. Those are nicer than, and more loving than God is, that's right. God is. It's embarrassing and shameful, and frankly, it needs to be repented of. But praise be to God again for the fact that we have a sure word, and we can hold on to that. We hope that, that article will have an effect on evangelicals to wake them up, to be like, yeah, I need to actually take seriously the fact that God is good and faithful and true. And maybe I did overspeak during the time of covert or whatever else. Maybe I did misspeak here. But you know what? Guess what? Confess it and say, you know what? Here's what God says. And here's what his law says. Guess what? That would make the news for all these people who put their foot in their mouth over the years. I know Tim Keller is now gone. I pray he's with the Lord, right? Um, For all these people who put their foot in their mouth right over the years, if you're still living, you still have breath. Just go forward, and guess what? You're probably going to get some media time, probably be called a hate or whatever else. But God will be glorified as you say, here's what God said. Here's what his gospel is. And I'm sorry I said that. I've been justified in God's heavenly courtroom. I got nothing to be ashamed of. We all get it wrong once in a while. May Christ be praised in my life. And they might you know, skewer you. They probably will, but who cares? You've boldly uh, you know, reclaimed that witness for Christ and for his kingdom in a faithful way. And I would just say that those of us who are here who are critiquing you, would say, praise be to God, brother, sister, come back. This kind of thing, we're not going to be holding it over your heads of what's wrong with you, you um, you know, discernment's broken, you know, bot or whatever it is. So I don't think any of us want that for anyone. We want to see Christ exalted, his Christ, his church unified, and uh, and not splintered over something that is so basic and obvious. Um, who wants that for any church? Again, the applications of that, there are gray areas that we have to pastorally be sensitive towards, and, and there is a category that's legitimate for the Christian conscience. But at the end of the day, it can never be about what God has spoken and clearly spoken on and says, this is true, this is right, this is good, and this is not. And this actually runs against my gospel. This is why Jesus came. And this is why he came to save sinners. Much more can be said, but uh, may, may Christ be praised by the article and by other things we've written as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Scott. I appreciate it. Nice. Right, good to see you. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.